Oh, okay. Hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to my live stream. Let me uh, get that sound turned off there. Looks like we're all good. Hi. Welcome to another bonus episode of Critical Q&A Live, uh, where I get a chance to catch up on some of my old backlogged Q&A questions that have been sitting in the queue for way too long. Um, quite honestly, because I don't know the answers to some of the questions that I get asked. Uh, in fact, quite a few of the questions, and I've had to look things up or check stuff out or wonder if I even want to go there. And uh, anyway, welcome, everybody. Welcome to my critics out there. I'm so happy to see all the usual suspects in the comment section here as we get going. And uh, hopefully more people will join us as we, uh, as we kick this off. Excellent. Yes, I am so ready for Thanksgiving tomorrow, and I hope you guys are too. It's a holiday that really seems to be getting second fiddle, you know, really seems to be getting short shrift in the, in the uh, I don't know, in the world. We hardly hear too much about it. Uh, stores hardly have anything except some stuffing and chicken or turkey or whatever, but uh, anyway, uh, it's just interesting how they just can't wait to get all the Christmas decorations and Christmas things to you, uh, even halfway through November. But, you know, Thanksgiving's just sort of over in aisle five, you know? <laughs> anyway, um, okay, so... I am. Um, I was trying some new um, some, some new software here to do this stream. Looks like it's going okay. Um, still, still working on a little technical bug. That's something that I'm just. I really want. Can't seem to get. And uh, I will keep working on it until I figure that out. But uh, we are streaming here today and having, and we're going to go over some some answers to some questions. I'm, what I'm going to do is just like last time in terms of setting the ground rules for today's live stream, uh, <laughs> which I will violate whenever I want, but how this is going to work is if you super chat me a question, I will definitely get that question answered uh, before the stream is over. I'm not going to leave any, any super chatted questions unanswered. If you want to leave a question for me in the comments section of the stream here, and let's go ahead and um, flip over to that. Uh, so we should have the, the comments start streaming up on the screen here, as well as uh, those of you who are following live right now, you can see the comment stream um, on YouTube. It takes a little while. For, and for some reason, this is a recent change, and I don't think it's something I'm doing. I think it's something YouTube's doing. I'm not sure what the cause of this is, but it takes a little while for all the comments to, to stream through and get up on the, on the screen. I'm not sure what's up with that. Hopefully, they'll start appearing before too long here. But, um, but I see all your comments in the, in the live chat. Um, if you put my name, there's a little at Chris Shelton MSC. If you put that in there, it highlights my name, and it makes it a lot easier for me to find your questions. So only use that if you want to ask me questions, because then I'll go to it in the stream when I'm uh, searching through it to find uh, things you want to know about. Otherwise, I might miss them. And I don't want to miss your questions if I can help it. Uh, okay, let's see here. I'm a little, I'm already a little <laughs> talked out today because just an hour ago, I just got finished with a 90-minute, with a two-hour interview 
with a with a new person who's a former Scientologist that you have not seen. Not recently out. He got out a while ago, but he had some very, very interesting things to say about Scientology in London and uh, UK. So uh, you'll be seeing that in a couple weeks. That'll be kind of fun. And I did want to let you guys know that I think, hmm, I think one of the most important deep dive podcasts I've ever done is coming up this weekend. And it's a talk I did. Uh, I've done something on the order of 25 or 30 talks with John Atack. He is, he is absolutely the authority on Scientology and on Scientology lore and history. The guy is just a walking encyclopedia of knowledge on so many things. Uh, Scientology being really up, 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 up there. And he and I uh, solved a problem with this podcast that's coming up this weekend. And the problem is, where can you go to get the whole rundown on Scientology and the occult and what that's all about? And I've done talks with a man named Joe Zimhart about the history of the occult and occult beliefs and New Age beliefs and spiritualism and mysticism and all these different labels that apply to this whole endeavor that has been going on, you know, for the last uh, few hundred years and has a, has a legacy that goes back thousands of years. Um, oh, there we go. Yeah, the comments are showing up there. So this podcast solves the problem of where is the entire rundown on Scientology's occult foundations in one place on video? Well, here it is, and it's going to come up this weekend. So I hope you guys will be watching for that. I am really, really, really happy with the conversation that we had on that, and I think we got into sort of the bottom of the rabbit hole, you know, sort of the how far down does it go? Well, th- this, is, this is where it goes. And, uh, and, I th- and I hope you guys find it as, as interesting and fascinating as I do. I am intrigued and always uh, so, so interested in learning about that stuff and especially how it applies to Scientology and what Scientology is really all about. And it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's not what people generally think. Some of us know. Some of you guys have been paying attention and watching over the years. And it's all out there. There's, no, there's nothing we're going to be talking about in this podcast that is new information. But we're putting it all together <clears throat> Excuse me, in one place. So, uh, so I, anyway, I hope you guys will uh, check that out when it drops on Saturday. So why don't we go ahead and start getting some questions here. Now, I've prepared like last time. Um, I've prepared my little uh, question screen here. So let's pop up our first question. Daniel, I just watched the videos with Jesse Prince and Stacey Brooks demonstrating the TRs, and I was struck by how similar some of it was to stuff I've done in acting classes. For example, I've essentially done the Alice Says exercise only with my lines from the script instead of the Alice in Wonderland quotes. Given celebs in Scientology, I was wondering if you knew if there was any cross-fertilization with these kinds of techniques. Did Hubbard borrow acting exercises? Did acting teachers borrow exercises from Scientology? Oh, right. Let's bounce back here. And Oh, we lost... <laughs> Okay, I'll fix that on the uh, software, I think, after this whole thing is over. But uh, um, 
looks like we lost the uh, comments on there. Maybe I can do something quickly to fix this. Just check something real fast. Maybe, maybe, maybe. All right, well, we'll cope as we go here. Let's go ahead and get to this, uh, the answer to this question. Um, acting classes. I, you know, the, the truth is I have no idea exactly precisely where L. Ron Hubbard got the idea for TRs. I have been told over the years various things, including the fact that um, uh, his son came up with them, not him. Uh, at least as far as the upper indoctrination TRs go, the, 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 the ones about yelling at an ashtray and moving a person's body around and controlling it and that kind of thing. As far as the basic uh, TRs zero to four, yes, I actually was having a very similar thought to this question when I watched a show called Barry, <laughs> which showed acting class, I showed an acting class and different acting exercises. And I've never really paid much attention to how actors are trained. And sure enough, they were doing things that looked and sounded, you know, similar to some of what goes on in Scientology with the training routines. The purpose is incredibly different. And how it they are done is actually quite different because the point with the TRs and the point in Scientology where things get really weird with those drills is the amount of time that is spent on them and the intensity with which they are done. The total focus that is required in order to do the TRs in Scientology is different, very, very different from any acting exercises you're going to do. Even getting deep into emotional headspaces in acting that's about as close as you're going to get. I mean, like really going down the line with this whole what was what's the um, uh, the acting coach? There's some there's some famous uh, Russian, you know, doing this uh, method acting Stanislavski method, I think, uh, you know, that Hubbard himself said was was kind of nonsensical. And, and frankly, I kind of agree with him on that. Um, I think a person should be able to generate emotions or looking like they are generating emotions without necessarily having to pull up trauma from their past in order to reenact it. I, I don't. I don't think that's a good thing for actors to be doing personally. But I, you know, that's my my just my lowly little opinion on that. As far as whether um, Hubbard drew from acting exercises or acting classes, it's kind of the other way around in Scientology's history. There are one or two schools of actors, acting actor training places, um, uh, that were run by uh, or using Scientology principles. Uh, there was a real famous one. I think it was Milton Caselis or something like that. Can't remember the guy's name, and I might be getting that wrong. But there was uh, there was a famous acting coach in Hollywood who uh, had a lot of Scientologists in his class and created Scientologists with his class because he would bring Scientology into it. But that was the only place I ever saw Scientology in the world of actors and acting training coming together. Uh, so it did seem like a bit of a natural fit that you could do these communication drills. And at the same time, um, oh, thank you for those super chats, guys. Um, and at the same time, uh, be learning how to do acting. You know, um, Hubbard had his own ideas about acting, uh, which he wrote down in um, various 
issues for actors when they were doing the technical training films in Scientology. I'm not, I've not actually read those issues. I was never privy to them. They're uh, up at gold, at the gold base, and they were there for actors. But I know it involved understanding and using Scientology's tone scale, the emotional chart in Scientology. So, I, you know, I know this isn't like a super deep answer to this question, but I, you know, I, if I knew exactly precisely where Hubbard came up with the TRs, I might be able to get a little bit more in depth about this. But all I can really comment on with it is that, yeah, actors are certainly trained with uh, exercises and drills and, and things that look maybe a bit like what Scientology is doing with the TRs, but I guarantee you nobody's sitting in an acting class, or at least I'm not that I've ever seen or heard of or ever experienced, where people in an acting class are sitting in chairs for hours at a time just staring at each other. You know, that's just not, that's just not a good thing to be doing, uh, no matter who you're doing or what the con- who you are or what the context of the, of the situation is. That's transinduction. That's, that's not good. And it's also a bit of a, uh, it creates a disassociative state in a person um, because they're sitting there with these ideas about how they have to be there and not do anything else but be there. And so a lot of Scientologists, when they're doing these TR0 drills, of just sitting in a chair staring at somebody, they get the idea that they're not supposed to be thinking any thoughts, that it's supposed to be Buddhist meditation. I very much had this idea when I was uh, doing the TRs in Scientology for a very long time. And there is nothing that will drive you insane faster than trying to purposefully quiet the noises in your head or pictures or sounds or memories. That Your brain's just popping the stuff off to you, you know, uh, over, you know, left, right, and center. And the more you're trying to focus on not having that happen, the worse it gets. It's awful. I know people who get into deep, deep meditation stuff also have this idea or sometimes get this idea and try to do this. And it, and it, uh, as far as I can tell, is generally not a, not a healthy thing to be doing. So, okay, so that's what I've got on that. Um, now... We will bop over, and I see I already have a couple of uh, Super Chat questions here, so let's go ahead and uh, pop on to one of these. Fabian Andiel, Chris, did never, ever anyone near David Miscavige or L. Ron Hubbard get, rea- get reality checked thinking, uh, WTF, that's the pinnacle of enlightenment when they witness DM or LRH behave cruel or like an egomaniac tyrant? Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay, so you're asking basically whether anybody saw Miscavige or Hubbard abusing people and then thought, hey, wait a second, this can't be the actions of an enlightened person or the pinnacle of enlightenment, as you say. Um, It's a reality adjustment for sure to watch a cult leader behave in an immoral way or in a way that you feel is, is not how they should be acting. It's definitely a, whoa, what's going on here? But this is where the concept of cognitive dissonance comes from, it comes out of, is studying this kind of behavior of, contra- of what should be contradictory experiences or contradictory facts that to a belief set or to an idea a person has that they're emotionally invested in. So here you have this, this belief or this idea or this idealized version of a cult leader as a belief, you know, this person is perfect or holy or enlightened or, you know, this guru or this master 
And here they are doing something that clearly is kind of off the rails, whether it's sexual advances or whether it's physical beatings or whether it's eating when they're not supposed to be eating or, you know, violating some other principles. Uh, But what ends up happening is what I've seen happen over and over and over again in cultic groups where where the emotional investment is really high and the belief in the leader or the leadership is really up there, is really idealized, is people are really, really good at fooling themselves, at at coming up with reasons or imagining reasons why this guru or leader is getting away with this or is doing this in that moment. For example, with David Miscavige in Scientology, I have heard people who were involved in the violence of his inner circle um, claiming that when they were there or um, similar situations in other groups like with, um, I think of Nithyananda right now or um, I think of... Um, some things that I heard about in 12 tribes uh, where there's a rampant physical abuse, especially of children, um, that the thought process of the believer goes, oh, well, it's not the cult leader's fault. It's not the guru's fault that he, he was driven to that behavior by the out ethics or the antics or the immorality or the wrongness or badness all synonyms, right, of the follower who the, who the leader is beating on or trying to hurt or trying to damage in some way or even sexually engage in sexual advances. Oh, that person was leading the leader on. They, they weakened him or they did something bad or so wrong or so heinous or so atrocious that the leader had to respond that way. They were forced to. And that's how they can reconcile that, that cognitive dissonance, that noise in their head about, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Oh, no, I know how this makes sense. This makes sense because, you know, fill in the blank. And this is just a, the one I gave this now about justifying it by blaming the, pers- the victim, really, is what they're doing, um, is common. That's a pretty common one. There are other ones, but those, that's the one I see more often than not, some variation of blaming the victim, because the cult leader or idealized leader must, be, must maintain their position in the rarefied air, and, uh, and they can't be questioned, and they can't be doing things wrong, and the system can't be wrong, so therefore, who's the easiest target to be wrong in this situation? Oh, the person who caused it in the first place, which is the person who's being beaten on or being, you know, molested or whatever. Um, it, it's, it's, it's really quite sad that people do that, uh, but they do. So uh, that's what I have seen with that. Okay, good question. Um, hope that was a good answer. <laughs> okay, let's go to, let's go back to the uh, preset questions I've got here. And here is our next one. Polymath. There is a new series of YouTube videos by a former Buffalo Org member. He seems insightful, but he does not address what the Buffalo Org is most famous for, the murder of one of its members by her schizophrenic son. Did Scientology members who were not in Buffalo know about this tragedy when it happened? Did it cause any erosion of membership? 
All right. Um, let us, I believe that her name, yes, Ellie Perkins is who we are talking about here. And there's actually a whole Wikipedia page about this. Now, Ellie Perkins is a name that I have heard over the years, but I never actually dived into her story. And so um, uh, I'm not going to read the whole Wikipedia page here right now, but in a nutshell, she was a Scientology parent. Her and her husband were both Scientologists out in um, in um, Buffalo. She was a, a glass artist. And her son, Jeremy, her adult son, I think he was about 24, 25 at the time, um, had been uh, manifesting and was later found uh, to be... To, to be schizophrenic. He was having very, very serious separations from reality, a delusional mindset that um, created ideas in him of paranoia and persecution, that his mother was trying to poison him that, with vitamins, that they, she was out to kill him, that she was victimizing him. And I, you know, I doubt that she was trying to poison him or hurt him. She seemed to be a, a loving mother. But schizophrenia is a rough mental illness. It's not just some disorder a person has. It's, it's a serious condition. And, um, of course, the problem here is that because they were sci- the parents were Scientologists, they refused, absolutely refused to ever consider any psychological or psychiatric help for their son. And um, so he ended up... Um, there's a lot of details, but basically, um, he was being dealt with every other way than giving him the medications that he actually needed. And when I say the uh, medications that he needed, um, it's uh, this business here of afterwards, after he murdered his mother with a knife, he stabbed her 77 times. It was excessive. It was insanely excessive. Um, literally, uh, when he was, you know, incarcerated and, and gotten the treatment that he needed. And he was found, he was found innocent of murder. He was, um, uh, institutionalized and he was given medications that he needed. And he said, let me see if I can find this real fast. Um, because his quote on this, uh, let's see here. Finished a shower, killed her. Yeah, here we go. He also stated the killing was a public relations fiasco. Jeremy was later placed on psychiatric medications, which court psychiatrists state have stabilized his condition. Um, uh, Here's a quote here. Jeremy himself told me that he firmly believes that if he had been taking these medications earlier, that it would not have happened, the murder. So kind of powerful stuff, um, and I have no idea what, I've, I don't know why the former Buffalo staff member didn't know anything about that or talk about it on his channel. Maybe he didn't know about it. This whole thing went down in, if I, have, if I remember this right, this was the early 2000s, yeah. He was uh, incarcerated by June 2003, yeah. He, she died on March 13th, 2003. And this was the day where he was going to be taken to uh, be put under somebody else's care. And uh, instead, Jeremy um, killed his mom. And um, March 13th, by the way, is L. Ron Hubbard's birthday. 
for whatever that means uh, to this. But, um, but yeah, I don't know that anybody in Scientology was at all interested in talking about this, remembering it, having any um, anniversaries surrounding it or anything like that. This is the kind of stuff that Scientology wants to erase from the history books, remove entirely from the memory of Scientologists, and definitely will come down hard on anybody who talks about it um, because it's just and theta, right, in Scientology. And theta is the bad stuff. If it's n theta, you must not think about it, talk about it, deal with it, or anything else. So um, that's what I can tell you about that. Is it's it's easy to label things in Scientology n theta. That's the word that's used, right? Interbulated theta. It's it's chaos. It's lies. It's black PR. It's 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 not true stuff. It's it's just there to make you confused, upset, and um, apathetic or fearful or you know feeling like you're going to lose anything that goes in that direction is labeled in theta. No matter how true it is, it's labeled as a lie. And this whole story would absolutely be considered n theta in the world of Scientology, right? People just don't talk about it any more than they talk about um, uh, the Reed Slatkin Ponzi scheme or the fact that uh, uh, Jay Spina is going to jail for Medicaid fraud in the tune of $8 million, $9 million. Uh, That's happening right now, right? And the last people who are going to tell you anything about it will be Scientologists. Uh, Their world must, must be maintained through rose-colored glasses. Everything has to be wonderful. Everything has to be great. Everybody has to be happy. And yes, I am doing a callback to the Lego movie (laughs) with everything's wonderful, everything's great. That whole song at the beginning, that's kind of what it's like in the world of Scientology most of the time, is everybody's like that. It's this puffed-up, exaggerated happiness that you have to demonstrate with, uh, you know, in the orgs and with other Scientologists. So, yuck. Uh, Okay. Okay, good. So that was that question. So now we bounce back over to the Super Chats, and I have another one here from uh, Mandy Bishop. Thank you very much for your Super Chat. And she says, what do Scientologists do in Scientology after they complete OT8? Are they just stagnant? Well, yeah, for the most part, they are. I mean, a lot of OTAs get cancer. Uh, there have been uh, suicides. There have been bankruptcies. There have been blowing up their lives with extramarital affairs. I've seen all of these things uh, right have, play out right in front of me uh, over the years with OTAs, highest level Scientologists you can have. These are supposed to be the most ethical, pure, native state Uh, Little happy thetans that exist anywhere in the universe, and here they are, you know, doing all the usual same stuff with all the same problems, all the same difficulties that everybody else has. Uh, They get fired from their jobs. They have, you know, mortgage payments that they get behind on. They have problems with their kids on drugs or their kids on alcohol or their kids doing this or that or the other thing. They have every single thing that everybody else has. There is absolutely zero that is special about being OT8. Now, that all being said, Scientologically, there's lots of things for them to do because very, very few of them are actually trained Scientologists who have gone up the other side of the bridge. The bridge to total freedom in Scientology is two sides. 
There's a training side and there's a processing side. So the, the auditing or processing side is where you get up to OT8. And that's as far as you can go right now and probably will be forever. Because there are no levels above that. They just have them by, you know, listed on a chart, but they don't really exist anywhere. So, so that's as far as they can go there. But there's still all this other side to do. And that's one of the reasons that Miscavige has, um, one of the many reasons that Miscavige has been so busy, busy, busy getting all of these books revised and lectures uh, after lecture, after lecture set, after lecture set. I mean, there's just binders and binders and binders of lectures on CDs that, are, that Scientologists are sold and they're told that they have to listen to all these things. That's the basics. That's the advanced clinical courses. That's the congresses. There's just bookshelves of this stuff. And that's not even all of the Hubbard Library. They haven't, I don't know that they've released even half of it all yet. I mean, there's 5,000 lectures in Scientology, something on that order. That's what I was told when I was in, and I saw the lists of the names of all these lectures, and, and sure enough, they you know, exist in one form or another, but they haven't all been re-gone re through, sound-checked, you know, made uh, listenable, and released for sale. So the ones that have been released, though, will consume years of your life getting through. And that's not even the training I'm talking about. That's just books and lectures to go through. Then there's the classwork, the actual pay for a class, do the class in a course room in Scientology's organizations. You can do all that lecture listening to and study of the books and everything. You can do all that at home. But these classes going up the bridge on the training side um, well, I broke it all down in a few videos years ago on the full, I laid out the entire Scientology grade chart, and uh, or the bridge as it's called, right? It's also called the grade chart or the classification, gradation, and awareness scale chart of um, levels and certificates, I think is its full formal name. So, um, so the auditor training is what you do in, on, the, on the training side. You start out with uh, the TRs course and the metering course. And I think then the student hat, you learn how to study. I mean, they, they start there and they move up these, these beginner courses. And then you start doing formal auditor training. And you go class zero, one, two, three, four. And then you do an internship, and then there's a class five course, which teaches you how to audit new era Dianetics, and then there's an internship, and then there's something called the grad five course, the graduate class five auditor course, which teaches you how to do repairs and stuff. And then there's the St. Hill Special Briefing course, and that, of course, we nobody can do right now. It hasn't been around for, for over a decade now that anybody can do that. But you can spend all kinds of time doing uh, the auditor training up to the level of grad five. And that's something that OTAs are told they need to do. So between all those books and lectures and reading and listening and then the auditor training, there's plenty for OTAs to spend their time doing in Scientology. And they are all told that uh, those are very necessary steps and they should do them. They don't all do them. Some people in Scientology have a real aversion to being in the course room. They hate learning and study and education. They just want to receive Scientology auditing. But you have to do a little bit of training as you go up the line because there's the uh, a lot of the OT levels 
are solo audited. In fact, all of the levels of Scientology, except for uh, the, the OT levels, um, there's just a couple of those that are, that are audited by somebody else. You have to learn how to audit yourself on them and even to get to OT8. So, um, so you have some, um, what's the word? You have some um, experience with training in Scientology as an OT8, but they want you to go get the full immersion. So, okay. Um, so that is interesting. Going on down the line here. Okay, I see that question. Let me just check through the comments here really fast because I'm really not keeping up with them. Um, okay. All right. So let's go back to our preset questions here because we're getting through those. All right, here's the next one. Martin Blue. I watched your podcast with Nora Crest, and it didn't take me long to notice the abundance of profanity in her communication. You don't talk like that. Nora seemed to be deliberately showcasing a defiant attitude through her choice of words and expressions, and her speech was quite effective. She constructed skillfully and deliberately the picture she wanted the listener to get. What do you believe is the role of such shock tactics in communication? What are the rights and wrongs of such speech? What I'm angling for is one of Chris Shelton's well-researched and scholarly lectures on the role of offensive speech in rational discourse. All right. Well, I don't know how uh, enlightened the speech is going to be, but it's pretty simple, really. I mean, you know, these are words that are outside of mainstream etiquette or accepted manners uh, for civilized speech, right? There's a long, long, long history of this, right? Why do we have the social rules and etiquette and manners and all that? Well, quite obviously, we have these things so we can get along better. This is the grease that keeps our relationships smooth, is you agree on certain principles and certain ideas, and as long as those agreements are kept, everybody's happy. One of those agreements in society is that we're not going to swear, especially in front of children, protect their innocent virgin ears from these nasty, awful, offensive ideas represented by these nasty, awful, offensive words. And, um, you know, I don't have a big soapbox on this, but this is just, you know, my, my immediate thoughts on it are that um, there is both uh, contexts that exist where that makes sense and there are contexts that exist where it doesn't. And one of the things about um, stepping outside the standard forms of convention and civility is you are making a point that you have high emotional investment in the, con in the communication that you are giving, right? This means something to you. In fact, you want the person receiving it to get that this is important, that this has an impact. You want to bust through their social veneer and their social conventions and, and really get across to them that I mean business right now, that this is serious, this is important, right, as I've said. So this is where, this is one of the, one of the primary functions of, uh, of swear words, of curse words, of, of words that are offensive to people, right? And of course, it very well is offensive sometimes. There are conditions where it's just not appropriate. It just doesn't make any sense to do it, right? You would never, ever expect to walk into a church and have the pastor or the priest or minister giving his sermon uh, and swearing at you while he's doing it, right? You would never expect that. That would be wholly inappropriate 
in that context. And we all kind of get on board with that and agree with it. But in normal conversation, we have all these rules and conventions, and this includes, well, let's, you know, let's keep things civil. Let's not go into those offensive words. And Nora, being Nora, and she is awesome, uh, it said, you know, screw convention. I got things to say, and I am passionate and emotive and emotional about this. And so you're going to hear me talk like a sailor. I'm going to give it to you straight, and I'm going to tell it to you with impact. And she did impinge, and there were people who actually even commented to me um, in emails and comments on the, on the channel that uh, Nora was too much. You know, oh, my, 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 my ears can't deal with this. They're burning from all the, all the nasty words that she's saying, you know. But Nora was definitely getting a lot off of her chest about her experience. And when you're involved in a group, like Scientology, or you have an experience, it doesn't even have to be culty, if you have an experience that is oppressive, that is uh, traumatizing, that is victimizing to you, then you really want people to get, you want to bust through the normal social conventions, and you want people to understand, this, this had impact on me, and I'm going to share a little tiny sliver of that impact with you by using these nasty words, okay? And that's really the long and short of it as far as I can tell uh, on that. You know, and again, we can all agree that there are contexts where that's appropriate and there are contexts where it's not, right? Nora would never go into a kindergarten class or a class of fourth graders and she could quite competently do a talk in front of children without doing any of that, right? Because it just wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, on a YouTube channel where she's talking with, uh, you know, amongst a, a friendly audience with uh, a host who understands her situation and, and the experience that she's had, she's free to say whatever she wants, you know, and that's how we approach that. So, all right, so there you go with that one. Um, thought it was an interesting question. So, all right, let's go back to your comments screen, and here we have here from Xcyan. Uh, he asks, do OT8s, you know, actually, I don't know if Xion is a man or a woman, to be honest. I always just sort of assume it's a man. I, I don't know. Um, do OT8s really need to sleep, and what does the Thetan do during that time? Okay, that's a funny question. Yes, of course, they do need to sleep uh, because they, have, they are humans. They are not OTs. Uh, that's just a label that they get in Scientology, as we've gone over. Um, so, yeah, they sleep. Uh, and, but let's say now, um, you know, what does the Thetan do during that time? Well, I have a very limited amount of experience with this, but one thing I can tell you is that I have heard OTs talk about how they will exteriorize while they're, while their body's sleeping and they will go flit around the universe and go get up to adventures and, and misadventures and things like that. Nothing too crazy or insane. I've never heard like, you know, serious war stories about this, just little dropped comments here and there really. But, um, but they believe that they can do things like that in the same vein as L. Ron Hubbard talked about going and witnessing the trains that were running on the surface of Venus, right? And the implant stations that are hidden away behind force fields on Mars. Well, how does Hubbard know about that? Because he claimed he went and looked at them. <laughs> You know, and Scientologists believed him. So if you believe that you can go go on what is called in Scientology the Grand Tour, 
This is actually a process that was developed back in the 50s to send people to go look at the sun, go look at a planet, go look at a universe, whatever, if I'm remembering this right. It's something like that. Um, you know, they want to go send themselves on a grand tour. They can go right ahead. Uh, this is just really dreaming. It's really no different than, than any, anything else. There's nothing psychic or spiritual about this. Uh, but this is what people get up to in Scientology at the highest levels is they believe that they are uh, enlightened, ascended masters and that they can they actually do have the ability to send their spirit off and, and engage in clairvoyance and telepathy and, you know, clairaudience and all these psychic cord sort of phenomena. So, um, so, you know, in reality, they're just sleeping in their mind. You know, they're the masters of the universe uh, running all over the place. So that is what I can tell you about that. I'm just clicking down the line here. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. Just looking at some of the comments here. Not sure. I'm totally understanding all the conversations going on, but interesting stuff. Okay. Okay. So um, let's get back to my preset questions. Yes. Next one will be... Okay. Anonymous from Sunderland. I understand my local Dianetic Center in Sunderland was the second to be established in the UK. Being such a deprived area, I find this to be fairly incongruent since even mainstream business businesses struggle to stay afloat here. In nearly 40 years, I have never heard anyone mention Dianetics, yet the center remains open on the main street in town. Why was my town even chosen being so far from the capital? The other day, I received a Scientology flyer through the door promoting some Hubbard books. This is the almost only evidence I have seen that the center is operational. What can you tell me about the Sunderland Org? How has it remained open despite such a low profile surviving since the 60s slash 70s? Could the links be deep in local infrastructure? All right. Uh, the reason I wanted to bring this question up is because I found it interesting as an opportunity to talk about how orgs were made in the first place. And Sunderland would not really, I think, be an exception to this. Um, most orgs started as what are called Scientology missions back in the 60s. And um, I don't know if this is the case with Sunderland specifically. It could have just been a flag planted in Sunderland and they made it an org right away. Or it could have been a mission first, but most orgs were started by people coming out of St. Hill in the 1960s. Up until then, there were only a handful of orgs around the world, and they had been started also by professional Scientologists who got permission from L. Ron Hubbard to open up what were called franchises. Now they call them missions. Uh, but they really weren't a whole lot different from a McDonald's franchise. You are given the right legally to use the copyrights of Scientology and Dianetics, and you are given the right to sell services, official sanctioned churches, uh, services from the Church of Scientology 
Uh, and in return for that, you will pay a percentage of the income that you make to the mother church, and that's the franchise system. And it requires an individual to go plant that flag in wherever city or town or area he wants to, rent the building, you know, hire the staff, get things going, sell books, sell services, and make a go of it. And it's really on them. It's sink or swim on them. The church is giving them some backup and some support, but not financial support. Now, once it converts to an org, though, then it becomes a different matter. So you have these franchises, and then you have official churches of Scientology, which are called Class 5 organizations. They used to be Class 4 orgs. Now they're called them Class 5 orgs. And these outfits are um, now fall under official church management. And that means that the management unit that's running them is responsible for them staying open and, and keeping the services going. And it's not just on some guy who's running the place and it's all on his dime and he's just sending a percentage up. The official churches of Scientology get significantly more money is taken out of them to go up to management and a significantly more pressure and orders and demands are put on them and the staff by Scientology management than what happens at the franchise level. So Scientology organizations are, uh, the policy on them is that they never close, ever, for any reason. And so, and I don't mean close at night, I mean they don't shut down. So many, many, many times when I was in Western U.S. management, we had to financially bail the orgs out because the mortgage payments would come due or property taxes would come due or some other big bill would come down and the church struggling along, selling a few books, bringing a few people in, they didn't have the money for that. They were making a few hundred, few thousand dollars a week. And that was it. They, you know, we were taking our percentage or cuts out of that. They were trying to give the staff some dribble of money and pay the light bill and pay the AC and, you know, keep the carpets cleaned. And this was why up until, you know, Miscavige's whole ideal org uh, program in the early 2000s was launched. Before that, most Scientology churches looked like shit. I mean, they had car bare carpet, raggedy, torn up, folding tables that had been there for 20 years, chairs that were falling apart, you know, because they could barely keep their doors open. And when they, when they really couldn't keep the doors open, management could be counted upon to bail them out. And then people would get in trouble, and sometimes executives would be replaced. But the priority was keeping the orgs going. So having said all that in general, I don't know anything about Sunderland specifically because I never managed any organizations in the United Kingdom, but I can't imagine knowing what I know about how Scientology is universally managed and run that anything would be so different in the UK as it was in the West US when we were when I was running things there. So, um, you know, how do these things keep going? Because they're, because they're subsidized by church management when they can't make the, the grade themselves because they have to keep going no matter what. Now, if they keep going, with it, if, if those payments, um, yeah, basically what they do is they just replace people and find more competent people, you know, who can keep the doors open, keep the show going and produce some money. 
But, you know, Albuquerque and uh, Hawaii and Sunderland. I mean, these are all these little pipsqueak. I call them pipsqueak orgs. It's, you know, just a handful of staff barely keeping the doors open, but they still keep them open. And that's the important thing for Scientology. So, you know, how thriving and successful they are, that's of, that's of secondary importance to staying open at all costs. And that's why even in a, in a, a little tiny place uh, like Sunderland, which doesn't really have any local business, uh, you know, to, 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 to create a thriving Scientology field in, they'll still keep going, uh, you know, like Energizer Bunnies. Okay. So, um, oh my God, Stuart. Uh, <laughs> okay, thank you for that dad joke. Uh, all right, let's go ahead and see what else we've got here. Oh, here's a good question from Marty O'Connell. Hi, Chris. What's your view on tax-exempt status for any religion? Do you think it's justified for good so-called religion? And if so, how can this be regulated? Okay. Um, I have some mixed views on this. I don't have like a firm, you know, one way or the other kind of stance on it. What I believe is the problem with tax-exempt organizations in, in the United States, certainly, and probably around the world, but certainly here in the U.S., I can say this definitively, is that we grant tax exemption to organizations that in no way, shape, or form serve the public interest, um, and yet they get these tax breaks. Any church that sets up on any corner anywhere in the United States is automatically granted tax exemption because they're a church. And, the, and then they can have it taken away from them if they abuse that privilege or are obviously not a church. Um, but you'd be surprised what is not considered, uh, you know, obvious with this question. Um, you know, things like Scientology, scams, televangelists, you know, these, these obvious scams get a pass because they have the word religion, you know, connected with their name. And, um, and the IRS is incredibly lax in its enforcement of the rules of 501c3 in the tax code. It's, it's .501c3, that's religious tax exemption. And there are requirements that have to be met in order to have and keep this tax exemption. It's not hard to comply with them. John Oliver showed this up years ago on his show when he created the Church of Perpetual Exemption uh, to show how what a joke this was. And it remains to this day a joke. So I believe that charitable religious organizations that act in the public benefit and provide community support, succor, help, and hope to people those are organizations that I think deserve tax exemption because they're using their funds for the public good. How many of those are there? Probably not a lot because what we tend to see, especially across the United States landscape, is an awful lot of organizations calling themselves churches and using their tax exemption to get more, mon more free money in and then use those funds for enormment, you know, for, for personal gratification of the church leadership. Uh, this is the tele televangelist's daily work. 
This is Joel Osteen's daily work, right? This is L. Ron Hubbard's daily work, L. David Miscavige, right? They take advantage of these. The, the lax enforcement of the tax codes and the, and the laws connected with uh, religious and religious exemptions. So that's kind of my immediate quick take on that. It's actually pretty much my full answer on it. I, you know, I'd like to see a lot stricter regulation of this, um, but we're not going to see that because the culture of the United States is such that it is incredibly biased towards religion and religious institutions. And none of the religious, major religious institutions have any interest in changing the status quo when, when this comes up. They will defend and fight and, and submit amicus briefs to the judges in cases where this kind of thing comes up because they know that if this little culty group gets its tax exemption taken away for being a culty little group, that they could be next. And they should be next. Because a lot of these organizations, I mean, Catholics with their pedophiles and this kind of thing, they take gross exam uh, advantage of the situation, right, to, uh, to empower and enrich themselves. And I have nothing but contempt for organizations that do that. I think it's gross. Um, but it happens. It happens on a daily basis. So, you know, it's only really through fighting this, uh, through exposure of abuses and stuff like that, that we get any interest from government in regulating the activities of these religious groups. Otherwise, they'd have, if, if we weren't out here doing this kind of, of talking and speaking and writing and, and pushback against this stuff, and not just Scientology, not just in that world, but across the boards with the ex-cult world, in and out of academia, um, and the media who work you know, uh, some people in the media, Tony Ortega, you know, work tirelessly to try to expose these abuses for what they are. Um, but we are few voices in an ocean of people who, uh, for whatever reason, ignorance, stupidity, faith, and criminality, all of these things are influencers and, and motivators for why this is allowed to continue on. Um, that's my take on it, at least. Okay, so thanks for the question. All right, um, let's go back to my preset questions here. I think we're getting, we're doing pretty good uh, progress here today on this. Um, all right, I think we have, yes. Okay, here's the next one. Mark was wondering, can you tell me some of the questions or processes one would run on themselves while doing solo auditing with a meter? Just trying to get an idea of how solo auditing works. All right. This is uh, always an interesting question. Now, I never did solo auditing in Scientology, so I only have a book experience with this. I've spoken with many, many people about it, and I trained people while I was a Scientology Sea Org course supervisor. I ran the... Um, the solo course room uh, to train auditors in how to do solo auditing. So that's where my experience comes from is, is literally I made solo auditors, but I did not do it myself. So I don't have the subjective experience of sitting with an e-meter, holding the cans, doing the process, okay? But what I, what I'll talk about what I know. And what I know is that the auditing happen, that happens with solo auditors 
is in many ways very, very much similar or the same as what goes on with Scientologists who are being audited by an auditor. There, the setup is similar. There's a, there's a model for how to set up the session. But as far as the questions go, what you're doing in solo auditing is telepathically contacting the, the vast majority of solo auditing is telepathically contacting using the e-meter to, to guide you with its reads, with its responses on the needle, you're contacting body thetans. And so um, I, I really did, never really did get down and dirty on all of the specific processes and questions that are asked. But, the, but theoretically, I understand that what you're doing is, con, is making contact with a specific body thetan that represents some problem or person or issue in your life that you find non-optimum or don't like or don't want, whether it's a worry or a concern or an upset or a fight with your spouse or a person uh, that you're not, you know, that, that you're having an issue or problem with. And this body thetan represents that problem or issue. And you, using the meter, right, you contact it, and then you do a little assessment and tell the body Thetan basically to flit off, right? To, to go away, to go get his own body, to, you know, you do a little process on them or a little procedure, and that is supposed to basically exorcise them. Um, you know, I guess I could have done a lot of research on this and come in with, you know, exactly what questions you ask and stuff, but I, I kind of didn't have the time today, and I didn't really feel it was that important. It's it, the point that I wanted to make on this is that you're sitting in a room by yourself talking to yourself. That's what you're doing in a solo auditing session. So this whole business of watching the meter, looking for these reads, exercising these, you know, spirits from your from your body, it, it's so delusional. I mean, it sets up such disassociation in, with, with OTs. And it's also, as we've gone over in some detail in earlier episodes, it is... Um, it's both uh, ego reducing and ego boosting at the same time. It's this. It's it's a very weird thing because it. You know, you look at somebody like Tom Cruise and you go, "Well, how did he? How does he become such an ego monster? How do these OTs convince themselves that they're that they're all that?" And it's because they believe that when they go into these solo auditing sessions, they are they are freeing beings. These body thetans are not just little demons or little imps. They're you and me. They're the same thing, same kind of spiritual entity. And you're freeing them from a prison that they have been trapped in, uh, uh, you know, this body thetan circumstance, for millions and millions of years. They've been trapped there. And you're the savior hero. You're the person who's coming along and saving the universe by saving these thousands and thousands of beings that are attached to you. So, I mean, talk about a savior complex, right, that can develop from that. Talk about a God complex that can develop from that. I mean, yeah, that's, that's what's really going on there. And that's the part that I find infinitely more fascinating and disturbing than, uh, than what they're doing in a session, right? It's, it's the, the procedure only feeds this monster, and yet at the same time, and here's the, here's the, the, the double bind of it, is 
at the same time that you're doing all this freeing of theta and spiritual beings in your auditing sessions, you are also having to comply and conform more and more and more with Hubbard's view of the world and with the church's mandates and demands on you because there are no Scientologists who are more tightly controlled than OTs, the OT Scientologists. They have paid the most. They have sacrificed the most. They have jumped through the most loyalty hoops just to get there, just to have the right to do what they didn't even know what they were going to be doing. And then they go in session and start, you know, doing all this solo auditing stuff. And they are becoming more and more encased and entrapped in the Scientology headspace and model of reality. And it's a delusional model. So while it's ego boosting, it's also disabling. It's, it's ego reducing. And it's very, very, very psychologically damaging to people to do this stuff, to think that this is reality. It's, it's not good. So uh, that's what I can say about that. All right. Um, so let's go back up here and see if I'm missing any questions in the queue here. Again, uh, put my name there, and then I'll be able to catch it a lot easier. Let's see here. Um, <laughs> I'll bet that's true. Okay, what do we got here? Is this a question? Looks like it. Um, oh, okay. Uh, it looks like somebody was addressing this, but I'll just answer you real quick here. Frank V. asks, do staff members and Sea Org members have to live on Scientology grounds or Scientology-owned homes? With the amount of work hours needed, how could you afford anything to support yourself? Okay, um, it's a good question, Frank, because in the Sea Org, you are provided with birthing, but as a Class 5 staff member, generally you have to make your own way. Um, in other words, at the city level, where you're only signing on for two and a half or five year commitment, you generally have either a spouse or partner who is paying your way or supporting you because you're not making really a whole lot of money at the church, or you have another full time job that you're doing and you're actually just working all the time. And that's how I made it through eight years of staff in Santa Barbara as I spent most of my time working. Um, I was either working down at the church, which was pretty much volunteer time, or I had a full-time job of some kind. And I had a lot of different jobs because I was cycling through them all the time. As far as where I lived during that time, that money was being used to support me so I could rent an apartment or rent a room or something like that. For brief periods of time, I even lived in the church, uh, though. But it wasn't an official thing. It was very unofficial, very under the radar. I, people knew I was doing that, but official church management did not. Because they don't, they didn't want people living in the the church building. That wasn't what it was for. Uh, but you know, we were so desperate and broke that uh, that was that we were, a couple of us ended up living there. It was an old hotel after all. But officially speaking, Scientology churches, city level churches, do not provide birthing. A couple of them have made arrangements for staff housing, where they'll have staff members collectively work together, live together to pay the rent, and the price comes down when you have like four or five staff members living in a two-bedroom apartment or something, you can do that. And I know that there are some places where they do do that. 
Um, but it's it's the exception rather than the rule. Sea Org members, on the other hand, have their birthing paid for by the church. It's subpar, really pretty degraded birthing, um, but that that they do get it uh, provided to them. Okay, so let's go back. I think this will be the last. Yes, this is the last of the preset questions. So we're coming up uh, coming up on the la- um, on the on the latter heart part of the show here. Emily C. I'm also noticing a lot of new Scientologists here in Europe. Do you think in relation to second-generation Scientologists that it takes less time for the first-gen to leave, or are they even more committed to the cause? All right, so I took this one up because I thought it was interesting to compare and contrast first- and second-generation cult members, and, of course, Scientology is the one I can speak to most directly. I'm a second-generation Scientologist. My parents were first-generation Scientologists. They got in on their own bat. I was raised with it. I have since met and interviewed plenty of first- and second-generation Scientologists, and I've had an opportunity to study this to a degree when I got my, my master's in coercive control. So... First-generation members can be, there's no hard and fast rules on this, because the fact of the matter is there is very little study of this. There is some academic work done on first versus second generation, but for the most part, this is a very new field of study. Um, second generation or multi-generational cult families and the influence that cult belief has on those family members is something that needs a lot more work done on it. So when I talk about this, I'm only talking from, uh, you know, from a little bit of academic research that's available on this and a lot of experience that I've had in talking to people about it. So take it for what you will. Other people might have other opinions and ideas about this based on their experiences. What I've seen is that first generation tend to be less committed and less hardcore um, in the long run, okay? But that's that's such a broad statement, I feel uncomfortable even saying it because it's so context-specific for how the person got in, why they got in, what problems they were trying to solve with the cult or with its belief set. Um, And for the second generation members, for the people who were raised in it, it has everything to do with how hardcore their parents were with them about the belief set and about the dogma and the structure and the control. Some parents have a hands-off approach with their kids, even if they're hardcore believers. Other parents could be somewhat casual believers or hardly involved at all, but they're hardcore with their kids. Maybe they were raised in a religious household that isn't this same religion, but they got the idea through how their parents modeled behavior that they need to be strict and hardcore with their kids, and they really need to instill moral discipline and and you know fortitude and all that in their kids, and so they can become even somewhat abusive with those kids in enforcing a belief set on them, whether it's Christianity, Islam, or Scientology. So you have, so context here is crucial to being able to evaluate the situation. I really don't think, you know, I almost want to retract what I said about first gens just now because um, about how they're generally, you know, less involved because it really does matter so much to the context of the family situation. 
It also has a lot to do with what group we're talking about and how open they are to having kids involved. Uh, A lot of groups are, but not every group is. There's plenty of cults out there that don't want to have anything to do with kids. And they don't want to raise kids in them in, within their group, and they don't want to have to deal with the problems of, of, ch- of children. So, you know, in that case, your first generations are going to be really your hardcore membership. And if there's any kids around, they, they really just kind of picking it up by proxy or something. You know, so, um, so it really does depend on the circumstances. Um, you know, I have. I, I will say that recovering from the experience, and that's kind of where most of the studies have been done, is on recovery from uh, the cultic, abusive, coercive situation. In that sense, I think is maybe where I got my idea that first gens recover easier than second gens. You know, and, and I think that uh, it, it seems rather obvious to me, but to, to, to explain it clearly, you know, not so obvious. Um, you know, when you're raised with a belief set, when you're raised with a worldview that black is red and white is green and that kind of thing, it's so hard to overcome childhood indoctrination. It's so hard, which is why so many cultic groups want kids and want to get hold of the kids and i think i I, wasn't there some um documentary about bible camp or church camp where they talked about nine years old being like the golden year like that's the time when you if you can get them before they're nine years old you've got them for life well why is that because you're putting ideas and and a picture of reality into a person's head before they have any ability to even begin to question what you're telling them. The kids will ask you a million questions, but they accept your answers as true and valid for the most part, and especially when it comes to um, instilling community-level beliefs or ideas where the entire group is on the same page. You get taken to a church. There's all these people there, people you don't even know, this is the world you're, you know and are aware of as a kid. You don't know about India and UK and Russia. You know about your house and you know about maybe your school and you know about some of your friends and you know about church. And that's your world. And if you're only going to one church and getting one message the entire time, odds are you're going to accept the idea that everybody thinks that way or most people think that way. And this is truth and this is reality. And, and it comes in at a level that is, that is deep enough in, in, our, in our memory, in our brain, whatever, that it's, it, it, it just gets, it's like tree roots. It's just deep in there. And, and pulling all of that out, you know, that's what I've been talking about for 10 years now is all those layers of belief that you have to, that you have to strip away like onion layers. It's, it's pulling those roots out. Well, they don't come out easy, and they don't all come out at once. And some of those roots you are absolutely positively convinced are true. Even after you reject the dogma and reject the belief set, there's still some of these roots deep, deep, deep down for second-generation members. And first-gens don't have that. Most of them got involved in the cultic situation in their 20s or in their 30s or later in life even. 
And they've got a whole bedrock of identity and belief and, and ideas about the world that are separate from the whole cult picture or paradigm or model, right? So that's the difference between them. And that's why I believe that recovery from and, and even intervention for second generation members is significantly harder. That's, that's my take on it. Um, but let's not kid ourselves that first-generation members cannot go all in and become radicalized and even kill themselves for the cause. So, it's, uh, so I'm not at all saying that first-generation members cannot become that deeply embedded in a thing. But um, I do believe because you have more clearly that whole cult, pre-cult personality to draw on and use as, 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 a, as a recovery or an, or an intervention strategy, that first gens are a little easier to deal with or a little more predictable in how they're going to, to act or respond to efforts to get them out. Um, that's my answer on that one. I don't know. Uh, you know, kind of talked myself out on that one, but that's what I had to say on it. So you guys let me know what you think there. Um, okay, going on down the line here. These are great. You guys are awesome. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not trying to get to Q&A 420 by April 20th. <laughs> That's funny. Um, okay, let's see if there's anything else here. Oh, I've gone out of focus. Oh, that'll go in and out. My camera, I, one of these days, one of these days, and I'll, now that you've mentioned it, I'll probably do it sooner than later. I need to set it so it's not on autofocus. I've got it on autofocus right now. Um, I'm always sitting right here, so I might as well just set the focus so it always is uh, focused on me. Okay. Um, oh, thank you, Opera for Life. Very nice comment there. Appreciate that. Uh, okay. And I think... I think we've reached our end. So I think I'm going to start wrapping up now. Um, let's see if there's anything else. Nope. I think we've caught up. Yeah. All right, guys. Uh, I really hope that y'all have an awesome Thanksgiving tomorrow. For those of you who are celebrating, uh, I sure will be. And uh, we're going to be with family and also then uh, with friends too. So we're going to have a fun time here. And uh, on Friday night, we will be doing our critical, con our critical Conversations call-in show. So I hope you guys will join us for that on Friday. And on Saturday, I will be dropping that John Atak podcast on Scientology's occult background and origin story. And uh, how to this day, it is still the basic of Scientology is occultism. So I uh, hope you guys will check that out. All right. I, oh, did I skip a uh, come to Jesus question there? Sorry. Uh, Going to go. You guys have a great time, and uh, I'll, I'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye.